0: Well, last week we considered, as I noted, verses one through seven in detail, and then briefly looked at verses eight through eleven before a closing gospel call and a Christian application. Now, I would love to. I would, having been so edified by the Word of God myself last week, and just considering what we considered, I would love to rehearse the truth that we considered last week. Um, but for the purposes of time. I will give a kind of brief synopsis of a couple of points. I'll call your attention to a couple of things that will help create context, and then we'll get to the text that we are going to consider today. First, before we finish this psalm, I want to call your attention to where this psalm began. That's presuming, as I noted last week, that um, psalm 9 and 10 weren't originally part of one psalm. But as far as we find it in our uh, scriptures, psalm 10, the beginning of it, reads like this, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord, or O Yahweh? Why do you hide in times of trouble? Now there's many things I could say about that verse that we considered last week. We see that a Spirit-inspired psalmist is nonetheless asking the question, Why do you stand afar off? Why do you hide in times of trouble to the living God? So it shouldn't be surprising when the people of God go through seasons like that. A psalmist, likely David, is writing these words as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it's not going to be unnatural. It's not going to be out of the ordinary for the people of God to go through times where they say to God in the truth of their hearts, why does it feel like you're standing afar off? Why does it feel like you're hiding your face? Like you're you're purposely not making eye contact with me, as it were. Like you're avoiding looking upon my situation and intervening. David had moments like that. We see that Jesus, when He was on the cross, takes words from Psalm 22 and cries out words like that. But what I want to call your attention to today, before we get into the text we're going to consider, and without rehearsing everything we considered last week, is I want you to consider the faith that is demonstrated in this statement, in these questions. Notice, The psalmist isn't saying this, as one commentator noted, in a kind of third-person way, right? He's communicating this in a second-person way. He's not just having a conversation with someone saying, why do you think God stands afar off? Why do you think He's hiding Himself from me in times of trouble? Right? Now, there may be faith behind that kind of conversation. You could have a legitimate believer talking with another legitimate believer about that. But notice the faith that is clearly demonstrated here. What is the psalmist doing? He's taking those questions to Yahweh. He's going right to God. He's not saying to someone else, why is God standing afar off? Now granted, you can have moments like that. You can have those conversations with somebody. But it's much more notable. It's much more notable outworking of faith when you say it directly to God. So we see faith even in the questioning. Second, I want to just remind you of the extensive description that we saw of the wicked. I won't rehearse all the exposition of the verses, but I'll give you a little bit of a synopsis. So we saw that the wicked is like a bully. You see that in verse 2. We see that the wicked is like a boaster. We see that in the beginning of verse 3. We see that the wicked is a poor judge of what is and isn't praiseworthy. We see that in the second half of verse 3. We see that the wicked lives like a practical atheist. Verse 4. We see that the wicked is oftentimes prosperous, beginning of verse 5. Uninterested in God's judgments, middle of verse 5. Powerful, oftentimes, latter part of verse 5. He presumes, oftentimes, that his present success and ease will go unchecked. He is arrogantly presumptuous, we see that in verse 6. He uses his tongue to deceive and sin and to cause trouble, we see that in verse 7. And then we'll get to a little bit more of what we see by way of the wicked's actions in verses 8 through 11. So we'll get there. I told you last week that uh, as a child, I learned a lot of the kind of person I didn't want to be from watching cartoons where the bad guys were just the kind of people or robots that you didn't want to be. (laughs) And there's a sense in which when we look at the wicked in this psalm, we get an idea of the kind of people we are called not to be. Being saved by the grace of God from all of our wickedness, We should look more and more like the righteous Lord who saved us and bought us with His blood, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you want some examples of how we could walk in the opposite of the wicked, I would call your attention to last week's message and the application at the end. But with that being said, let's get into the text. That's the brief review. Uh, We begin by looking at the conclusion of the description of the wicked before the psalm turns in verse 12. So we begin in Psalm 10, verse 8, where we read, He sits in the lurking places of the villages... In the secret places he murders the innocent, his eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. So, now, as uh, one commentator notes, the psalmist turns to describe how the wicked attack the helpless. It is portrayed as an ambush, to use language from Alan Ross. So, first we're told, if you look at verse 8, he sits in the lurking places of the villages. So he's not just sitting like hanging out and relaxing, taking it easy. He's sitting as in sitting in ambush. That's what he's doing. He's in the lurking places. These are the locations that are most suitable for an ambush. They are essentially, if you will, hiding places. The word for villages here in the Hebrew speaks of unwalled places. They are unenclosed areas. So that's where he's sitting. This is the place where he deems to have the greatest advantage over those who are most vulnerable. Now it's worth noting in the Septuagint, which is the Greek rendering of the Old Testament, that it does note here that he sits in these places and he lies in wait for rich men. And he's looking to likely rob them and then subsequently slay them. So that may be, I mean, you would think that the person who's lying in wait to rob would rather rob somebody who is rich than somebody who is poor. But the idea that you see very notably here is that he is looking to take advantage and he wants to put himself in the most advantageous spot to take advantage of others and to rob and to hurt. Next line reads, In the secret places, he murders the innocent. So this alludes to oftentimes, the behavior of robbers. In job 24:14, he used similar language. Was, there in that scripture we read, "The murderer rises with the light, He kills the poor and needy, and in the night he is like a thief." Job 24 verse 14. And why secret places? So he won't be seen by men. perhaps that's part of it, right? So that he won't be brought into disrepute. Maybe he's got a reputation and doesn't want to be brought into disrepute with others. That could undoubtedly be part of it. I think most likely, not that those other things are not possible to be joined to this, I think the most likely idea is that the secret places provide him with an advantage. This is not like the Revolutionary War times. Remember Revolutionary War times? You have like the armies like, both like out in front of one another kind of marching into the field for battle. This isn't like that. This is something where he is looking as a predator to pounce upon prey. Now again, this won't be all the wicked, but in one way or another, this is um, well descriptive of the wicked oftentimes. The predator watches and looks to strike at a time that is most advantageous. That's clearly seen in the description that follows in verses 9 and 10. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws them into his net. So he crouches, he lies low, that the helpless may fall by his strength. So what's happening here? What's happening in verses 9 and 10? Well, the imagery is being used to reinforce the prior point. You have basically two images that are being painted for the reader in verses 9 and 10. The first one is that of a lion, a lion who's waiting in his den, or it could be rendered here, waiting in his cover. So the wicked waits secretly as a lion in his den or cover. So note, like a lion, seeking whom it may devour, which is reminiscent of 1 Peter 5, verse 8, with reference to the wicked one. And thus walking in the steps of the wicked one, who is described as a murderer from the beginning, the devil described by Jesus as a murderer from the beginning, John eight forty four. 44. They seek to catch and devour the poor. Who are the poor? They're the vulnerable. They're the afflicted. But they aren't just the poor in general in the context of this psalm. We're going to see they're the believing poor. Now, doubtless that the wicked oftentimes preyed on more than just the believing poor, but we're going to see that most immediately it's the believing poor, the believing afflicted, the believing vulnerable that are in view. So that's the one, first metaphor like a lion but also they are like a hunter. We see that as well. He catches the poor when he draws them, draws him into his net. So the imagery is that of springing a trap. And the result of all that is seen in verse 10. Now that first line, if you look at verse 10, so he crouches, he lies low, it may extend the description of the previous verses, or it could be rendered, so the crushed sinks down. So it could be extending the description, or it could be showing the result. The result, if you look at the text, is clearly seen in the second half of verse 10, but it may be communicated in the first half if you render the first half like this. So the crushed sinks down. So it could be referring to the crushed, or it could be referring to the crusher who crouches and lies low. But I want you to see this. The big takeaway from this for our, for our purposes would be Oftentimes, a mark of the unrepentant wicked is to take advantage of other people. And oftentimes, those who are most vulnerable, those who are most afflicted. That's oftentimes a marker of the unrepentant wicked. In contrast to them, we're going to see even in the psalm, as it is shown in many places in the Scriptures, God is a helper of the poor. And I would say in light of the whole of biblical revelation, beyond just Psalm 10, if we were to look back and if we were to look forward into the New Testament, we would know that as New Testament Christians, we're called not only to not look like the wicked here, but we are to be those, to use language from the Scriptures, who are helpers to the weak. We uphold or help the weak. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 We are to defend the weak. Psalm 82, verse 3. We should, even as the apostles told the apostle Paul, remember the poor. Galatians 2.10. So if you were going to say, okay, what is this description of the poor? wicked have to do with me. I think as a New Testament Christian, you should look at it like this. You should say, I don't only not want to be like them, I, I want to make sure I, I don't take advantage of people. I may not be the wicked, I may not be lying in wait to rob somebody, I may not be looking to do that kind of thing, but I don't want to take advantage of people in one way or another. I don't want to see somebody who's gullible and say, you know what, I could take advantage of them in this way, I can take advantage of them in that way. I don't want to be that kind of person. I want to be a helper to somebody. I don't want to be a predator. We should be those, you see these people here, it's interesting, they're planning and plotting, at least that's implied in what they're doing. Uh, They've been planning and plotting to rob. We ought to be planning and plotting ways to help others and to give. They're looking to steal and kill. We ought to be those who look for ways that we can help and we can give. Joyfully plotting about how we might do that. Back to the text. The wicked can take these kind of actions because of their thinking. Now if you were here when we studied verse by verse through 1 Timothy, so often through our study of that text I called attention to the fact that thinking drives behavior. Right doctrine will drive right living. Wrong doctrine will drive wrong living. And here is an example of that. They do what they do because of a thought process that they have in their mind that doesn't line up with the Word of God. We see part of their thought process in verse 11 where we read, He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. Ah, okay, so that's how he can do what he does. Now granted, there's more going on than just that, but again, it shows you that what a person thinks in their mind and in their heart will in some way, shape, or form inform or drive their behavior. Now I want you to notice here, the wicked says these things where? In his heart. They might not necessarily, or all the time, come out of the mouth. But they are nonetheless said in the heart. We're reminded through that that there's a lot of bad things that can be said that are inaudible, at least to men. As Christians, we would do well to live with the idea that there is always a hot mic. right? You oftentimes see in the news, and it happens every once in a while, it happened recently, where somebody will get caught on a hot mic. And as Christians, we ought to be living with an idea that we're always around a hot mic. But that hot mic doesn't only hear the words that come out of our mouths. That hot mic hears the words that are said in our hearts. That's the kind of life that a Christian lives because it's not just about externals. As a Christian, you say, no, God bought me with the blood of His Son. He loves me. The Holy Spirit is inside of me. And I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit with what I say outwardly or with what I say inwardly. And what's driving you? Is this some pursuit of righteousness so that you can come into the presence of God by your own accrued righteousness? No, it should be love. Love for the God who bought you with the blood of His Son. But this is a reminder that God hears the thoughts that said in our hearts. A lot of bad things can be said in a person's heart. Psalm 14, verse 1. Psalm 53, verse 1. Both of which say that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Remember that Jesus, perceiving the thoughts of the scribes and the Pharisees, He said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Luke chapter 5, verse 22. He knew He could perceive their thoughts. Remember that Jesus is the one who said that it's out of the heart that an abundance of sinful things proceed out of a person's mouth. Matthew chapter 15 verses 18 through 19. So watch your words. Not only the ones that come out of your mouth, but the ones that are spoken in your heart. Well, the wicked, he says certain things in his heart according to this text. First he says, God has forgotten. Well, the question is, God has forgotten what? One answer could be the humble, right? They're crying out to you, but you're not helping them. It seems that God has forgotten you. That could be one idea here. And if that's not uh, mutually exclusive from the idea of them saying, God has forgotten what I've done. So, God has forgotten you, and it's as though He's forgotten me robbing you or murdering you. God has forgotten. And the idea here, generally speaking, is that God will not hold me to an account. He's forgotten. It's out of his mind. He goes on and this is what else the wicked says in his heart, he hides his face. Now, now notice that the wicked here is an allo- allowing for an existence of God, right? But look at their view of God. No, no, he, God is forgotten. He hides his face. He's intentionally indifferent to your suffering. And he's intentionally indifferent to my sin. That appears to be the idea here. He doesn't want to be bothered with the affairs of men. So they allow for the existence of God per their language, but they perceive Him to be one who doesn't intervene in the affairs of men. And lastly, per this text, they say He will never see. It's not just that He hasn't seen the oppression that's spoken of in the psalm, but He won't see. Their practical observations, and that's what they are, their practical observations form a kind of unspoken theology. And I want us to note this. It's important. It is offensive and it is impious theology to assume that God is indifferent to matters on earth. You may not know why God hasn't intervened, right? A reference last week when I watched Prince Caspian just thinking and imagining right just recalling having watched that movie, I could wonder how those in Narnia just thought about how how could Aslan deliver us from the, the, the white witch in the way that he did and then allow this to happen for so long, and the Telmarines come to power and it 's so dark. How could he allow this for so long, and doubtless there have been Christians throughout time since Christ has instituted the New Testament church, who have wondered and have said, why, why, how long, how long? But never let it bring you to a place where you conclude that God is indifferent. That is the thinking of the wicked. He's not indifferent. You may not understand His time frame, but that does not mean that He is indifferent. I want want to recall something to you. When God was revealing strong, the the, the imagery is very strong in the book of Ezekiel. Um, When God was revealing to Ezekiel the Old Testament prophet, the judgment that was going to come upon Jerusalem, it was so strong that um, it was right. But nonetheless, Ezekiel's reaction in Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 8 shows how he was so moved by it. He said, Ah, oh, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? And Yahweh answered by saying, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great and the land is full of bloodshed, and the city is full of perversity. For they say, Yahweh has forsaken the land, and Yahweh does not see. So part of what was driving the perversity and the bloodshed that was happening among those who were supposed to be by name, God's people, and they were supposed to be in reality, God's people, what was driving that that erroneous and ill behavior Was in part the idea that God's indifferent. He doesn't see. The believer stands in stark contrast to that. God's people know that God is not forgotten. If you have not come to the Lord Jesus Christ, even as I said last week and I remind you again today, you may have forgotten a whole bunch of your sins. Doubtless you have. You may remember if you sat here all day and tried to think of all the sins that you have committed against a holy God, you would only come up with a small, small fraction of the sins you've committed against God. I want to let you know God remembers every single one of them. But, if you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, the God who knows all things, says, I will remember your iniquities no more. (laughs) And then through the Gospel, you could say, the God who knows all things has chosen to not remember, as it were, my sin. And remember that God always remembers His people. You don't need circumstances to tell you that God remembers what you're going through. The Word of God tells you that. He hears you. He loves you. Your Savior will never leave or forsake you. You don't need circumstances or feelings to tell you that because God's word already has. Now we see the turn. Here we go. The description has ended, Now begins, as what one commentator noted, the invocation. So now the psalmist begins to pray. Maybe he had prayed a little bit in the second half of verse two, but now in verse 12, "Arise, O Yahweh, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. So first we see a call to action. Strong language. Arise. Language that was associated with the ark moving from place to place when it was in the the, the mobile tabernacle. Arise. We see this language in Psalm three verse seven, followed by the phrase, O God, lift up your hand. So it's as though the psalmist, knowing that God is aware of all that's going on, is nonetheless calling him to act. It's as though, though he was not, it's as though you were just sitting idly by. I am asking you to arise, and I'm asking you to lift up your hand. The imagery there is drawn you could say in part from somewhere like Exodus 7, 5, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. The idea of lifting up one's hand its an image of one about to strike. Lift up your hand. Arise, lift up your hand. Strike the wicked, deliver the oppressed. Both went hand in hand. Then he said, finally, do not forget the humble. Again, as I've noted, that word for humble in the Hebrew could be noted as afflicted. And again, the humble here and the afflicted are not just the humble and the afflicted in a general sense, though doubtless many were humble and afflicted who didn't have a saving trust in the living God. But we're going to see that these are those who trust the living God and cast everything upon Him as it were. Verse 13, the psalmist says, Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, You will not require an account. So again, the language is strong here. If you go back to verse 12 and you come into verse 13, you would see the psalmist use three different identifications for God. He's calling Him Yahweh. He's using His covenant name in verse 12. In the second half of verse 12, he uses the, the word El, another identification for God. And here in verse 13, he uses the identification Elohim. So he's calling for God to act, and he's saying, why do the wicked renounce God? Well, well, this is what's going on. This is what they're thinking, God. They're thinking, you're not going to require an account. So he's observing this strange reality. Why do they renounce? Or the language there in the Hebrew could be revile. Why do they renounce God? Why do they revile God? And the answer is, the reason why they do this strange thing is because they don't think that you will hold them to an account. Literally in the Hebrew, they think you will not seek. They think you will not seek them out and seek out their sin and hold them to account for it. That's why the wicked do such a thing. Again, look how wrong thinking drives wrong behavior. He renounces or reviles God because he has said in his heart that God will not require an account. Now, I quickly just want to make an application here um, because you might say, okay, well, I'm not going to revile God. I'm not going to renounce God. And I want to show you something from a New Testament text and I'm I'm acknowledging it's not an apples-to-apples example. But I want to show you a way in which a person can revile God and renounce God, calling God a liar, which is a heinous and wicked thing to do, and that's an understatement. In the New Testament, in 1 John chapter 5, verses 9-12, through 12, so I'm reading this so we can kind of see a, a New Testament application of this verse in the Psalter. John writes, "...if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater." For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. Now watch this. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because, why? Because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. So to not believe the testimony that God has given of His Son is to call God a liar. That's why I'm saying this would be a good New Testament application of what we see here in the Psalter. Why do the wicked renounce or revile God? Well, one way you could renounce and revile God is by calling God a liar, by not believing the testimony He has given of His Son. And if you were to say, what is the testimony? Well, John goes on and tells us that. He says, and this is the testimony. <clears throat> so here it is. That God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. Similar to the idea in John chapter 1 verse 12, but to as many as received him, who the word incarnate, the son of God, Jesus Christ, God gave them the right to be called children of God. To not believe that eternal life is found through faith in the person and work of Christ is to reject God's testimony of His Son and eternal life. And it is to revile God. It is to renounce God. And it is to call God a liar. I hope that would be no one in this place by the grace of God. Well, David goes on, Assuming it is David, since this doesn't have a superscript, the psalmist goes on and expresses uh, that their thinking is wrong. Verse 14 reads, But you have seen, for you observe grief and trouble, to repay it by your hand. The helpless commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. So here the psalmist corrects the views, the wrong views of the wicked in no uncertain terms. He says, But you have seen... So, earlier we saw in verse 11, they say he will never see. No, the reality is you have seen. Now, it's another whole question, like the psalmist was essentially asking in verse 1 why don't you act? Why do you stand afar off? But the fact that God doesn't act in the time frame that we want him to act doesn't mean that he doesn't see and it doesn't mean that he doesn't care. The psalmist says here, but you have seen. Now, I want you to see, in the case of the wicked, they're prospering, they're doing well. And their theology was based upon their experience. They thought that justice delayed meant justice denied and that God was blind. So what was informing their theology, i.e. their thinking about God? Their experience rather than the Word of God. That's another big error. If you think your feelings and your experience are going to be the grounds that you stand upon for your theology, you will find them to be quicksand. Their temporary success, at least to some degree, caused them to think that God is not there and or indifferent and cannot see. But notice how faulty and unreliable their interpretation was. God had seen, and they could not hide. All their behavior is completely before Him. Psalm 33, verse 13 reads, Yahweh looks from heaven, He sees all the sons of men. He has viewed. He views, and He doesn't view in some... In different kind of way. As David noted, the psalmist here, for you observe trouble and grief to repay it by your hand. So you see it all. You see the trouble. The trouble caused by the oppressors in this context. And you see the grief. What results from the trouble caused by the oppressors. You see it all. And you will cause your hand to take care of it. That phrase there, to repay it by your hand, could be rendered essentially you will take care of it. You see it? You're going to take care of it. You say, how? Well, maybe God's going to use the snares of the wicked against them as we've seen already in the Psalter. That could be part of it. The traps laid out for the vulnerable will snap back and catch them. Ultimately, under God's superintending of life and history, it'll happen. And ultimately, God will hold the unrepentant wicked to an account when they stand before Him face to face. The helpless here are those who had no other means of repayment. They couldn't repay. They were helpless. In due time, God would be the one who would repay. And notice that phrase, the helpless commits Himself to you. The word here, the language here connotes abandonment. This is why I say they're not just the afflicted or the poor in general. They're the believing poor and afflicted. Why? Why? Because they commit themselves to the living God. Within a New Covenant context, of course, that would look like trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. They are those who have left it all, as it were, to God. My life, my eternity, this situation, I abandon it all and I leave it in your hands. And God is identified here as the helper of the fatherless. Now note, from an interpretation standpoint, right? it's not that all the crushed and beaten down were fatherless, though doubtless some, if not many, were. The idea appears to be that the fatherless represents a group of those who were among the most vulnerable in the ancient Near East. So they well represented those kind of people that needed God's special protection. Hence, when you look in the Mosaic Covenant, why there are special provisions for such individuals. The psalmist continues, Break the arm of the wicked, And the evil man seek out his wickedness until you find none. And as Eric Lane notes, that language there, break the arm of the wicked, essentially means break their power, right? The arm is basically a metaphoric representation of strength. So they're doing what they're doing because they have some measure of power. Break their arm so that they're not able to use their arm, as it were, to afflict and to rob and to murder and to do what they're doing. So break their power. A good example of this kind of language might be found in Ezekiel 30, verse 21. Son of man, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and see, it has not been bandaged for healing, nor a splint put on to bind it, to make it strong enough to hold a sword. In other words, I've broken the wicked's ability to do what they would do in the exercise of their power. Um... The verse could be broken down in different ways um, just by way of the the shape of the verse. Uh, I won't go through all those details for the sake of time. The second line of verse 15 says seek out his wickedness until you find none. And the idea here is that may you search it out and may you hold it to an account. And the implication would be punishing that sin until there's nothing left to punish. Seek it out until there's no more. Verse 16, The Lord, or Yahweh, is King forever and ever. The nations have perished out of His land. Here we see the psalmist move to expressions of confidence. I want you to know, in the midst of a world that to the psalmist, to some degree, looked upside down. That's what it looked like for him. He's like not understanding why the wicked are getting away with what they're getting away with. There are many people living in today's world, right, who are looking at what people in positions of power are doing and are saying why are they able to get away with what they're getting away with? Yahweh, do you hide your face in times of trouble? I mean, people are suffering. People are hurting to differing degrees in our land and across the world. There are wicked regimes. There are wicked people in positions of power and they are exercising their power against not only the vulnerable, but against large masses of society and including in many places, Christians. And one of the things that's so important for any Christian to remember in this time or in any time to come is that regardless of what happens in this fallen world, you need to get your eyes above the clouds, as it were. You need to have a view that's not just a view of life under the sun, but to use language from Ecclesiastes, under heaven. And you need to be reminded that Yahweh is King forever and ever. That God is on His throne. The Father has at His right hand the Son to whom has been granted all authority and power. That's the reality. So as God superintends all that happens in the world, the wickedness of the wicked to further His plan of redemption, as He even uses the wickedness of the wicked, sovereignly superintending sinlessly the wickedness of men, He is bringing about, drawing us closer to the fulfillment of history as we get ready for the return of His Son. But you have to love, the psalmist is living in a time where he sees things as upside down. Why is this going on? This is what the wicked is like. This is what the wicked is saying. This is what the wicked is doing. But now, after moments of praying, and that's a good thing to do, right? You want to pray about these things. The psalmist does. Verse 12, verse 15, maybe in the second half of verse 2. But now we have expressions of confidence. Yahweh is King forever. Over and above everything that they do. You are unmoved. Unstoppable. Not unmoved in the sense of indifferent. But you're not shaken. You are sovereignly causing all things to work after the counsel of your will, to use language from Ephesians 1.11. Yahweh is king forever. He sees beyond the present plight into the unseen reality of God's supremacy in dominion. And with that sight of faith comes assurance. And there should come joy, by the way. Psalm 97 verse 1 says, Yahweh reigns, Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad. Now that second statement there, uh, the nations have perished out of His land. For the purposes of time, I'll give you some, some quick possibilities of what's going on there. Either the psalmist is looking back and saying, hey, when you brought the children of Israel into the land of Canaan, the nations that had inhabited the land, they have perished. So that's a token of how easily you can deal with your enemies. That may be part of what's going on. David may be looking back into, in some degree just looking at how God has delivered him from the nations before. Some suggest that nations here is kind of a metaphoric reference for Israelites who are acting like heathen. That's a possibility. Some think that the language here could be a prophetic perfect, meaning it's rendered in the future tense as it is in the Septuagint. The nations will perish out of the land. Let me just assure you, Yahweh is king forever. And he easily dealt with the nations that were in the land of Canaan when he brought the children of Israel into the land. Though the children of Israel made it hard upon themselves with um, coexisting with Canaanites that they shouldn't have been coexisting with and by disobeying Yahweh. And let me rest, rest assured, all the nations that rebel against God will be held to an account. Now we get to verse 17. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear. Another statement of faith. God hears the desire of the humble. Earlier in the psalm, we saw the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. God heard that too. (laughs) But He hears in this loving, relational way. The desire of the humble. And in due time, He will act. Just because He hasn't acted yet, doesn't mean He hasn't heard. If you have been washed by the blood of Christ, you've come in faith to the Lord Jesus, every time you pray, just know, in that relational way, your Father hears you. And just because He hasn't acted doesn't mean He hasn't heard. It just means His ways are not your ways. And His thoughts are above your thoughts. And He's got a better plan than the plan I had for Him or you had for Him. <laughs> <laughs> that phrase, you will prepare their heart, oh, uh, that I mean, it sounds beautiful. It sounds beautiful. It calls to mind the ways in which God works in His people via the ministry of the Holy Spirit, granting holy desires, the embrace of humility, the rejection of pride, the working of genuine faith and love for God and so on, you will prepare their heart. It it brings to mind all those images. However, the language here in the Hebrew can better be rendered, I think. You You establish their heart. In other words, rather than quaking in fear, God's people will have a settled kind of assurance a kind of calmness that comes with such faith. And I think that's one of the things that's helpful, regardless of how hard times may come. You can have this assurance that God not only hears you, but He will prepare or establish your heart. That whatever comes, whatever it might be, that God will give you the strength that you need to bear up under it and to get through it. He will establish the heart of His people. That phrase, you will cause your ear to hear, um, within the context of this psalm, appears to speak of how it appears as though God turned a deaf ear to the cries of the humble, but it would come, there would come a time where that would no longer be the case. God heard the whole time, but there would come a time when He would cause His ear to hear in the sense of acting in response to the petitions. The last verse of this psalm reads as follows, "...to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may oppress no more." So if you look at the end of verse 17, you will cause your ear to hear. And if you say, well, what will that look like when God causes His ear to hear? It will look like Him doing justice, acting in justice on behalf of. That language for justice there could be rendered as vindicating. You will vindicate the fatherless and the oppressed that the man of the earth may oppress no more. I think it's often so amazing to see those with whom God associates Himself. <laughs> Look at here, for example. He associates with Himself with the fatherless and the oppressed. In the ancient Near East society, they were among the most vulnerable. They weren't the who's who of society. But yet, the living God identifies with these ones. We know that through James, that God has chosen the poor in world, generally, generally speaking, the poor in, of this world, to be rich in faith. We know in First Corinthians that it's those who are seemingly not and seemingly nothing that God calls to Himself. The second half of the verse when it says that the man of the earth may oppress no more, for the purposes of time I'll briefly say this. This is language that we saw in Psalm 9. Man of the earth could be rendered there as man of the dust. It's just a reminder that man, even at his most strongest, is a man of the dust. When you're dealing with the living God of the universe, mortal man is but but dust, made in the image of God and has inherent value thereby. But this language, man of the Earth," is used to connote the weakness of those who, in their wickedness, perceive themselves to be so strong. I close with saying this. I close with saying this. We may wonder why God tolerates the wickedness that He does as long as he does but I want to say this to you. Aren't you glad He has been patient with yours? <laughs> Aren't you glad He's still patient with you? Even post coming to Christ. God's patience with the unbeliever is connected at least in part to the fact that He is bringing men and women to repentance. You see that very clearly in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Consider the long-suffering or the patience of our Lord as salvation. So if you were to say, why hasn't God intervened yet? Why hasn't Christ come and set things right? Why hasn't Christ come to judge the wicked and to vindicate His people? Why hasn't that happened yet? Well, the answer comes clearly. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Consider the patience of our Lord, salvation. What do you mean? In other words, God still has people that He's going to bring out of death into life out of unbelief into belief. Those who are not in Christ into Christ. It's happening. That's why God is being patient. The primary reason, and you can say there are other reasons joined to that for his glory, the outworking of his purposes, positioning things in history in such a way. Yes, but consider the long suffering and the patience of our Lord as salvation. So when you look at the news and you look at what's going on, you look at the world around you, you say, God, why haven't you acted yet? Maybe at that same time it comes to your mind, somebody's getting saved. Somebody else is going to believe the gospel. May have happened in this moment, may happen 10 seconds from now, I don't know, but I know it hasn't happened yet because the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. So be reminded, brethren, some takeaways from Psalm 10. This reminds us of the plight of God's people in the fallen world. There have been, in times past, powerful oppressors, there will continue to be powerful oppressors, but one day Christ will return. And God will vindicate His people and God will judge the wicked and deliver His people forever. I do think Derek Kidner made a great point. In the meantime, uh, I'll read this quote from him. Meanwhile, however distant may be the day of justice, one promise is not delayed. And he appeals to verse 17. Thou will strengthen their heart. It is the kind of answer that Paul had to accept and learn to value in 2 Corinthians 12 verses 8-10. through So note, consider the long-suffering of our Lord's salvation and know that while you wait, God will establish and strengthen your heart. And maybe even use you to bring people, to be an instrument in His hand, to bring people from death to life as you proclaim the gospel of His Son. With that being said, let's go to our God in prayer. Father, we thank You for our time in Your Word. And Lord, considering that Your long-suffering is salvation, Perhaps even this day, Lord, there would be those that You would bring from death to life. There would be those who would say, on this day, I I don't place trust in my own righteousness. I know that I've thought so many things in my heart. I know I've said so many things with my mouth. I know I've wrought so much evil with my hands that I know that I stand guilty before a holy and sinless God. And Father, if it be Your will, may even in this moment You bring such ones to a place where they say, I see Jesus. I believe the testimony of the living God that He has sent His Son to be the sacrifice for all who believe on Him for the forgiveness of sins. May they look to Jesus and say, He is Lord. He has been raised from the dead. And He is the One that I acknowledge to be the only way in which my sins could be forgiven. Oh Lord, if it be Your will, may You bring such ones to faith in Your Son. And for Your people, Lord, in the midst of the days in which we're living, may You continue to establish the the hearts of Your sons and daughters. And may You continue to help us, Heavenly Father, to trust You and to love You and to be lights in this world as we wait for the return of Your Son. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.